Saint Dymphna. Pray for us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. I really need to get more into her. No one, people won't stop giving me like stuff with her face on it now. Yes, because they're like, like, oh, not a bad thing. Yeah, (laughs) like oh, but sometimes it can feel a little bit like. (laughs) <laughs> this is the default present when you don't know anything about somebody except for this one thing. They're Catholic and they like mental health. Yeah. Therefore, St. Dimna. And I was like, yeah, may I on. also interest you in St. Alphonsus Liguri? May I also interest you in St. Therese of Lisieux? May I also interest you in St. Teresa? Ooh, I'm lesser no one, St. Jane Francis de Chantal. May I interest you in her? Like, there's so many other good choices. Her book is on my shelf to read on retreat next month. Oh, that's very so. exciting. I have not yeah. read her, but I was at a daily mass one time that was on her feast day. And I think during the homily, the priest described, you know, her life and how she, like, dealt with mental health struggles, like, her whole life and had a lot of, like, legit suffering happen and i was like oh okay (laughs) this lady needs to be my friend i think her book unless i'm thinking of someone else but i think it's called like the gift of simplicity or something like that um yes i'm a big fan of saints that were dealing with obvious mental health (laughs) struggles yeah it's so good to know that we have friends in heaven yeah yeah Always good to know. And I don't know. The more that I've come to appreciate my own, like, dealing with anxiety and dealing with some scrupulosity myself. Because St. Teresa Lisieux is my confirmation saint. Um, and there, she just continues. Th- there continue to be new ways where she is just showing up and coming in clutch for me. Because she had serious scruples as a young person and dealt with depression, mm-hmm. especially in the years like before her death. So just like, yeah. Saints are, yeah, saints are happy in heaven, but that doesn't mean they didn't, you know, have to deal with some of these sufferings too. Yeah. Welcome to the Feminine Genius Podcast. I'm Catherine Brewer. And today I have Dr. Chelsea Creech, um, <laughs> who is going to be my interviewee today. Um, So as some of you guys may know, Mary Grace, my normal co-host, is out on maternity leave. As of yet, the baby has not arrived, to my knowledge, but is due any day now. Um, So please keep her and her husband in your prayers. Um, But while she's away, I am lining up some interviews with other cool women doing cool science things. And Chelsea is our very first one. So say hi to the people, I guess. <laughs> well, hi uh, to the people and hi, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to uh, join you and be considered a cool woman in science doing cool things. Yes. Anyone, honestly, I feel like science is so much in everything that you don't have to be a person sitting at the bench to like be a person doing science, you know? Like, doctors are scientists in a lot of ways. Psychologists are scientists in a lot of ways. And we're going to get into that a little bit today. Um, Yeah. So why don't you first just give us 
a little overview about who you are, what you do, what you like. All right. Like Catherine said, uh, my name is Dr. Chelsea Creech. I am a palliative care psychologist. Um, For those of you who don't know what that means, I work specifically with people with life-limiting chronic conditions, typically in the last two years of life, and help them manage emotional wellness during that time. Um, Let's see. You said a little bit about myself just kind of generally. Yes. Like, you know, what do you do for fun? Favorite color. (laughs) My favorite color is blue. That's an easy one. Um, Catherine, I'm sure you can relate to this, but you kind of lose yourself a little bit in grad school. So I feel like I'm in that rediscovery phase and figuring out what I like to do for fun. So most recently, I have been um, getting back into swimming. Um, I used to be a competitive swimmer, and so I'm kind of picking that back up without the competition at the moment. Um, I love to knit and read mystery novels and try new recipes, cooking and eating them both. I mean, I would hope that one would follow the other in the course. One would hope, but some people only like eating. Some people only like cooking, you know. That's so sad. We are a both and people. We do, both and faith. We do both things. <laughs> who's your favorite mystery writer? Like oh, who's... Agatha Christie. Far and away. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Yeah. I think I've read nearly every book she's written. Um, I've just really been a fan of hers since I was little. Um like some of the first memories I have going to the library and like picking out my own books mm-hmm. was picking out multiple like Agatha Christie novels. So I was the same mm-hmm. way, but I did this with Nancy Drew and mm-hmm. there was, I don't remember the name of the series, but it was a group of, you know, there's usually like a trio of intrepid young kids and this, <laughs> there was A to Z mysteries, which had a trio of intrepid young kids. And then there was also, I don't remember the name of the series, but there was basically a group of kids that were investigating whether or not the adults in their lives were various mythical creatures. Oh, yeah. I was just talking about that series the other day. Yeah, like the My Teachers of Vampire. Yes. um, Vampires Don't Wear Polka Dots. Yes. (gasps) Yeah. Yeah. Giants Don't Go Snowboarding. I was literally just talking about this series on Saturday. It's so it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I still like have the vivid like memory as a child of going into the library and going straight to like the back left corner, <laughs> which was where all of like the children's mystery books were, figuring out which ones I hadn't read yet and what what the next one I needed was. Yeah. Do you feel like your love of mysteries was part of what kind of led you into your current career path or do you think they're totally unrelated? So it's actually funny. I As I was saying that I really like mystery novels, I was like, geez, Chelsea, is anything you like not somehow related to death? This is a bit, <laughs> this is a bit much. Uh, so not consciously, I would say I wouldn't necessarily see um, kind of an, a direct connection between them. But what I do think probably um, drew me to them is I did 
really like uh, Agatha Christie's main detective character, uh, whose name I will butcher here, please excuse me, uh, Hercule Poirot. He is a Belgian detective, and he has this whole thing about using his little gray cells and uh, the psychology to understand um, criminals' behaviors and why they've done what they did. Uh, And so I think that kind of was probably my first introduction to psychology. But even more than that, just the idea of a mystery that there is um, a way to understand, like, chaos and really terrible things. I think that probably is a theme that has kind of been present throughout my whole life. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's funny how... (laughs) It's funny how all these little things tend to, like, come together and direct us towards um, towards what we do. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit more about that connection to your apparent fascination with death um, and how that <laughs> works into your job? Yeah. So um, I actually started on this path uh, when I was probably, like, 14, I was volunteering with my dad at um, hospice of Blue Ash in Cincinnati. And um, my dad was working there as a spiritual care volunteer. Um, And I needed volunteer hours. So it was like this really easy connection. And as I got plugged in with them, I ended up volunteering with them Uh, throughout my entire high school career. So I spent four years with them. And I think that just kind of really increased my comfort around death and suffering and illness. And then when I was in college, I had to do a a psychology practicum experience um, to see if I wanted to continue down this path um, or if something else might be a better path. And so I reached back out to the directors of the hospice group, and they connected me with the summer camp that they run for grieving children. Um, And so I worked for part of the summer as a grief counselor um, with the little kids, which to this day is probably one of the hardest things I've ever done because the kids were there for usually loss of either parents or siblings and hearing like little kids talk about the loss of another child is just that will that will make you confront things that you didn't know you had to Mm -hmm. confront and so then from there um it kind of cemented this desire that i really did want to go uh into the counseling side of this field and then I thought I wanted to work with adolescents. Um, and then I taught high school for a year and discovered that I did not. <laughs> Some of my students might be listening to this. It's fine. I love you guys. But, you know, there's a lot. Um, so from there, I ended up going to grad school. And um, while I was in grad school, um, I had the opportunity to start working uh almost exclusively with older adults. And one of the first things I did was work with a memory care unit. um, And I ran a 
um, reminiscence therapy group where we worked with these patients between the ages of, I think our youngest was 73 and our oldest was a hundred and something. Um, and hearing the stories of their lives and uh, helping them to kind of remember and process different events in their life that had been formative. And it quickly became like my favorite part of the week. So I always looked forward to those Wednesday afternoons that I got to spend um, talking to them for about an hour and then debriefing with the nursing team and going from there. And from there, I kind of quickly decided that that was where I wanted to focus moving forward was on working with older adults uh, and primarily um, older adults kind of approaching the end of life. And so then um, I did an internship as the last part of my training and I had the opportunity to work on a hospice and palliative care team. And um, that team was really special. Um, we have the opportunity to work both with inpatient and an acute medical setting and uh, see outpatients as well. Um, and I just fell in love with that work. No day was the same. Uh, there was always a variety of presenting concerns and tasks and literally nothing was the same day to day, um, which I think kept it really interesting. And then when I was done with all my training, um, a job with that particular team happened to uh, open up and um, I was very fortunate enough to uh, get a position or to get that position. And now I work with uh, with that team that was so formative in my training, which is really wonderful. Um, and day to day, if this is what you're asking, um, mm -hmm. I work very specifically with um, patients kind of in the last two years of their life um, and both helping them manage certain kinds of physical symptoms. So sometimes it's as simple as teaching deep breathing techniques to help manage um, elevated heart rates or mindfulness practices to uh, help with blood pressure or dealing with the existential uh, questions that kind of come up as people approach the end of life. And then um, also just kind of addressing concerns related to sleep or pain um, or things like that to help people live until they die, as my mentor would say, instead of seeing the end of life as this period where things stop happening, um, really helping people live in the dignity that they have as children of God until mm -hmm. God calls them home. Yeah, and I'm so I'm so glad you mentioned that there at the end, because I think that's such a such a beautiful thing, like going back to you mentioned um, working specifically with that Wednesday afternoon group and where you're really using like the beauty of who each of these people are and their stories and actually using that to inform the way that you care about them. Like that's such like a, I don't know why I'm tearing up. We're just talking about <laughs> death. It's fine. I don't know. I think that that's such a beautiful uh, way to a way to approach that. Yeah, actually, that is something, I mean, I think about it all the time just as part of 
my reflection in my career, obviously. But um, since you kind of asked me to do this podcast and I've been reflecting on the questions you sent me, that kind of theme has been one that's been coming up a lot for me because psychology and medicine, they're both they're both sciences, right? So we've done experiments and research and use the scientific method to approach our questions and focus on replication and all these things that are really important for testing our hypotheses and um, reviewing the data and all of these things. And using certain models to reflect you know, certain kinds of behavior patterns. And, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then figuring out like, okay, what is adaptive in this instance might not be adaptive in another one. Um, and what patterns do we see from that? And how can we understand human behavior in that way? And we do, you know, a lot of observation and, and measurement and all of those kind of hallmarks of science. But one thing that I think is really wonderful about medicine and psychology is that they're also arts. And so being able to look at the individual person in front of you and not trying to boil it down to what some algorithm tells you you should do because they have X, Y, or Z concerns, but seeing the whole person who's in front of you and knowing them on an individual level and as Catholic, as a beloved child of God, um, I think is really fundamental to how I do my job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like there's even pieces of that to, you know, take away for people who are doing bench science. Like one of the things that I think about a lot is, again, in science, we care a lot about, you know, reproducibility. We care about having good controls to make sure that what we observe is um, what we think it is and not something else. Like we boil a lot of things down to analytical questions. But we can never get away from the fact that humans are doing science and humans are interacting with their science. Mm -hmm. And something I've come to appreciate a lot more in my own grad school career is how much human intuition is actually an important part of the scientific process. Yeah. So like in what you're describing, too, it's like we can't not like we have to include the human element. And I think let that be like a strength in what we pursue. Yeah, exactly. And I think kind of what you're saying there, we have to trust the human intuition and recognize the human person who's behind the science. And I think that's one reason I always kind of chuckle a little bit when people talk about bias-free science, um, because the human behind the science is going to have questions. And so, yes, we have data that we're interpreting, but there, there's still elements of the question that I might ask compared to the question that you would ask in the way that we formulate those and all of that kind of thing. Right. And the way that we decide to test them and the way that we decide to interpret the way, you know, the way we interpret what something means. Exactly. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's going to vary from person to person, too. I also feel like on the opposite side of things, I definitely heard this a lot in college and I'm sure you've gotten this before about the whole psychology is a pseudoscience. Yes. Nonsense. Uh-huh. So I feel like we can't have a show where we talk about science and not address that pygmy elephant in the room. Yeah. 
Yeah. The people can't see me, but I've rolled my eyes quite a bit at this <laughs> statement. I mean, I understand why people say that. Um, and I also understand that right now is a really interesting time in the field for me to be <laughs> trying to make this case because uh, if you follow psychology and psychology of sci- the science of psychology at all, you'll know very, at least very superficially about what we call the replication crisis right. and how well, it... They- what they don't know is that's everyone. So that's what I was going to say. <laughs> is that we've gotten a lot of press about it. But it's not just us. It's actually pretty common um, in a lot of scientific endeavors. But I think that is one of the big things that people will come at us about not being a science. Um, but otherwise, I mean... When people want to say, like, oh, such and such isn't something you can test with science, I'd say for the most part, um, if you really get down into the literature about different ideas or constructs, um, a good article, a good journal article is going to tell you exactly how they defined that term and how they decided to measure it and why they decided to measure it that way. And so at that point, it's very similar to deciding how you're going to measure molecular activity or something. It's not going to look exactly the same, but the process of deciding what you're going to measure and, and how you're going to know if you're measuring it is at least analogous. Right. Like the the study design is very similar right. between the two. Um, and, I, and I feel like for me, as someone who does work with, I work with molecular systems mostly, um, and I might go up into cellular systems, but to me, the thing that's really, that's both fascinating and I think particularly challenging in the field of psychology is that the more complex your, I'll use the word organism, but I don't like it, the more complex your like study organism is, you know, the more difficult it is to be able to draw conclusions from your studies. So I might be able to study a purified protein, a protein all by itself, and I can tell you all kinds of things about in this system it behaves this way and acts this fast and does all this stuff. And then you try to observe the same protein in a cell and things get a little more complicated because it's interacting with other proteins and cell components and all that sort of things. And then you want to look at the same thing in an animal model and it gets more complicated. And then in humans, like studying a human population is the most complicated possible system. Mm -hmm. Because not only do we have a whole organism to think about, but I think having a a rational soul also, um, and like the capacity to make choices not out of just survival instinct is you know i feel like that that impacts the responses that you get even more so to me like psychology is in a lot of ways like the hardest science because the population you're trying to study um, is the most complex unless of course you want to be a very strict evolutionary psychologist 
and say that humans are actually very simple creatures and we don't do anything that isn't instinctual. And then you get this idea that everything that someone is doing is always actually boiling down kind of to the molecular or cellular level and that all that it's about is, you know, reproduction and passing on genes at the at the most basic level. Um, but then I always think it's funny to ask those people, well, what do you think about like altruism, which is oftentimes inhibiting um, various instinctual responses. So I think there's a lot of questions that people are investigating in the field and trying to ask to make themselves sound smarter. Um, but at the end of the day, I think you're right that <laughs> humans are very complex creatures. And if you accept free will and the ability to kind of make different choices in different scenarios, uh, it does make the science more difficult. It, we have to account for a lot of confounding variables and a study that doesn't account for those is kind of a garbage study. To be fair, the relationship between science as it's conducted and the science as it's presented to the public is a whole other issue that we've talked about before on this show. But um, I feel like, as you alluded to earlier, science can or psychology especially can get some get some bad press. Yeah, we're also not very nice to each other. We don't like to keep our arguments private. So we like to air our dirty laundry for everyone to see. Doesn't make anything better. No. No, probably not. <laughs> I'd like to see the molecular biologists go at it in public sometime. That would be entertaining. <laughs> Openly arguing with each other about what kind of activation mechanism this protein has. Exactly. Wrong. That would be kind of funny. So... Because psychology is trying to, you know, strike this balance of um, the scientific and the human, how do you, in your own practice as a psychologist, like, how do you strike that balance of holding up the fact that each person is unique and unrepeatable and beloved by God and completely themselves, while also utilizing, you know, the scientific principles that you learned in your training? Yeah, so I think... This is kind of best exemplified by the principle in clinical psychology of evidence-based practice, which has at its core um, kind of these three concentric circles, or at least overlapping, they might not be completely concentric, um, where you look at the available literature, the available science, and see what the best practices are there. Uh, and then you consider the person in front of you and what they're telling you is most important to them and what their goals are and what changes they would like to see in their life. And then uh, the third piece is, as the clinician, what have I seen make the difference? Um, what have I seen be practical in my setting and with the tools and time and resources that my clinic has available? And so... After we evaluate all of those things, then you kind of get this unique treatment plan for an individual that ideally won't be the same for any other person that walks into your office, even if 
you have two people who, for example, are struggling with depression after the loss of their spouse. That's still going to look at least a little bit different if you're doing psychology right. Cool. I didn't know about the three different circles and how you actually break all of those things down. Yeah, and I think what's kind of cool is that you spend so much of grad school learning the like first one you learn all of the science kind of behind it and and learning like okay this is the gold star treatment for this problem so like cognitive behavioral therapy is or has been like the gold standard treatment for um, depression and so then you would say okay, so your patient comes in and they're saying they're having depression. And so you do um, a week on cognitive distortions and talking people through how their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are all interconnected. And then you have them do a thought record and you work on challenging those cognitive distortions, etc. And then you learn about interpersonal therapy, which takes time to examine people's interpersonal relationships and how those factors are interfering with or impacting, supporting, or um, restricting recovery. And so you learn all of those kind of direct interventions. And you get a little bit of experience with that second piece with the clinical or with the client's values. And you start to see kind of how those two interplay with each other. But what I think is really cool is now that I am Um, kind of working on my own finished with training I really get to kind of explore the third piece a little bit and think back on okay what do I think is feasible for this patient knowing what they value and what's important to them and knowing what the literature says is most helpful in most circumstances what have I seen or my peers seen really actually work in the quote-unquote real world of someone with six months to live, who it's not feasible to ask them to completely be abstinent from alcohol, for example, at this point. Going through alcohol withdrawal is not a good use of anyone's last six months for the most part. Um, And so how would we then best support that person's quality of life in that setting? And so exploring their values, I think, is one of the, the biggest first steps Um, that I try and take with every patient and identifying what's important to them so that whatever I might think doesn't become the focus. Mm, I like that. That (laughs) It's not, it's not about what you think about the problem, but it's about trying to see the person and see their situation just for the way that it is outside of yourself, perhaps. Yeah. One of my early supervisors So that therapy is really like holding up a mirror to your patients so that they can see themselves more clearly and not anything about you. Like the less involved you are in terms of like putting your own value perspective, etc. into the therapeutic relationship, generally speaking, you have better outcomes. And as you were describing that, another thing that really kind of captured my attention was just this sense of time that, you know, you might spend a week just or a month even as someone who's 
gone to therapy for for a couple of years like you spend several weeks just learning how to recognize cognitive distortions before you even get to trying to like address them and patients can move forward and move backwards and have good and bad weeks with that but there's just that's such a task of patience so how do you how do you handle that when it's like the return on you know a patient's progress or just knowing that this has to be approached so gradually like how do you how do you handle that yeah so i think depersonalizing it is probably one of the big things so like decoupling therapy success from my own idea of how i'm doing as a person as a psychologist etc uh, obviously, if if none of my patients are making any success, any progress at all, then I need to do some self reflection and and look and see what changes we need to make. But, um, like you said, like the therapy process is just not linear, and I think one of the biggest traps that both providers and patients fall into is thinking that healing is a linear journey. Um, it'd be really great if we could all reach out and touch the hem of Jesus's garment and just immediately be better. Unfortunately, that is not how most of our healing journeys look. And a lot of times we have tried everything before we are falling at his feet and saying, even the dogs get the crumbs from the table, Lord. Where where are my crumbs? And so obviously not all of my patients are Catholic or even Christian, but I think that's kind of the image that I keep in my head, uh, especially like you having done a lot of therapy for several years and knowing that my own healing journey has not been linear. One thing that I kind of keep in mind is that no matter where someone is on their journey, it's really just an honor and a privilege to even get to walk it with them because how much trust does it take to let someone see you at your most wounded and your most vulnerable. Um, and I I consider that truly a privilege and an honor to be able to do that for people. And I don't thank God often enough for the fact that he has given me the gifts to be able to do this and to um, be able to be part of his healing ministry. Oh, that's so beautiful. Thanks. I'm looking at my last couple of questions that I was supposed to ask you and I'm trying to decide. Maybe we can go with this one um, since I think this is kind of where we're at in this topic now. So like, what do you think is the biggest gift that your faith brings to your work? Do you think it's what, you know, what you just said? Would you like to elaborate on that more? So honestly, the first thing that popped into my head when you said that uh, was St. Joseph. Because you said biggest gift faith brings to to psychology to my work right okay yes i know you you have the other question in there too so i just want to make sure i was answering the right one and that might seem a little bit silly at first at saint joseph but he has a lot of titles right so he's got protector of the church um terror of demons terror of demons personal favorite uh guardian of the virgin all these things but he's also the patron of a happy death and the reason for that is because traditionally it's thought that he died in the arms of Mary and Jesus. Um, and what could 
be a better fate for all of us, right, than to die in the arms of our Lord and Savior and our most blessed mother. And most of my patients are not expecting that. Um, Most of my patients are very afraid of death. Um, And so, I mean, part of that is just the human condition. Death anxiety is an innate part of the human condition in a lot of ways. It's one of the reasons that the martyrs are so incredible, right? That they are able to face this extreme threat to their life and safety with joy. And so love of life did not deter them of death, deter them from death. And so I spend a lot of time confronting that innate, very human fear of the end of life and knowing that every day is a gift in a way that I think can be easy to lose sight of in other lines of work. Um, But then on the other side, I think it reminds me that even if not every patient I work with gets that ideal happy death, that at least I'm, I'm hopefully providing some peace and comfort to help people be less anxious uh, in their final days before they see God face to face. Really your whole, you know, small V vocation as a psychologist is living out that corporal work of mercy to comfort the dying. Yes. Yeah. Um, I lean real hard into memento mori. (laughs) How can you not when this is what you do all day? And then I would also say that having a faith that is very honest about death makes it easier for me to cope with what I see every day um it's never been a question for me that the last time i see my patients is the end like that's just not true um in my worldview in our faith right so i think in the times when things don't go right um, and in the times when things are really kind of crappy can I swear on this podcast? Uh, I will. That's fine. That word you just said is fine. Okay. I don't want to have to put a little E on it. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Yeah. Some. I mean, sometimes things are really not good at the end. Um, and it could be really discouraging to think that death had the last word. Um, but it doesn't. Death is swallowed up in victory. And do you feel like the fact that you do deal with this every day in your work, do you feel like that's also, you know, part of how your faith is strengthened as well? I would say the biggest thing that my work brings to my faith is it takes my very, my usual tendency to be very intellectual about my faith and forces me to confront the very earthy, and bodily nature of our faith uh, and what it means to believe in an incarnate God who died. I have a much different understanding and appreciation for the Passion and Holy Saturday in particular, um, having done this work and having been in the room with people who died, like as they died. 
and like knowing what that feels like and then hearing and he breathed his last like the incarnation just becomes real in a way that um it didn't before i worked in a hospital i don't have anything to say to that that's just so incredible to me me too i mean it's really like sometimes i don't believe that i get to do this job like it truly is one of the biggest blessings in my life i will say one thing that is kind of hard is that almost all of that has to happen kind of personally and internally Mm -hmm. or when i get to have conversations like this um and next to none of it is happening at work or with my patients except in like very very uncommon situations so that can be kind of hard sometimes yes i think that was another question i have for you as well because i'm sure you you know come across those kinds of conflicts where we're not supposed to bring too much of our personal values into a given situation which makes sense i think too because as you were saying before being a psychologist trying to depersonalize it make it about you know the person seeing themselves and not you imprinting your own ideas onto the patient um you know that's part of the process mm-hmm. i think that is why all good therapists have therapists um I will not say that's, like, the cure-all, but having somebody who's also, like, holding up a mirror for you so you can see yourself more clearly makes it easier to hold up the mirror for someone else. And do you feel like, is it a big challenge for you to not be able to share your faith as, like, openly as maybe you otherwise would if you were in a different setting with this person, or do you not really find a conflict there? I think I have kind of always had this attitude towards evangelization that living out the love of Christ is the best kind of tool and approach. And I see no conflict or break even between that and the work that I do. So in that sense, I kind of consider all of my work evangelization in that way. And so... I think because that's kind of the lens that I use, that makes it a little easier to not feel like I need to talk directly and overtly about faith the way I might want to sometimes. But that's not to say that when it's not clinically indicated, I I mean, I use scripture and talk about Jesus and do all sorts of cool interventions about how people view God and what they believe about God and how that affects their psychological well-being but that's on the rare rarer side of things is it one of those situations where you have to not like you're just like sitting there waiting for them to bring up god or the bible or something so that you can talk about it but is this the kind of situation where it's uh the patient needs to kind of bring up the subject in order to talk about that yes and no so in my intakes I ask basically every patient, so we've gone through kind of your basic history. Is there anything else you would like me to know about you? So sometimes people consider things like their religious or spiritual beliefs or other cultural practices that are important to them or other things like that that could inform their care. And so that's like one of the first questions I'm asking when we're establishing a therapeutic relationship 
And so then from there, what they do or don't say kind of informs a go or no go approach. And then if they say that, yes, it's, it's important, then kind of take that as like, okay, I need to keep this in my mind because it's probably going to be important for us to integrate on some level. Um, the same way that I would if someone said, my family is like the foundational thing in my life. And I need that to be at the center of any decisions that we make and any conversations that we have about what I do or don't want to do at the end of life. Well, I think I've gone through all of the things that I was planning to ask you about. Do you have anything else that you would like to share about either psychology as a science, being Catholic and being a part of this kind of work or what you're knitting these days? You know, just anything that you want to close us out with? I will say two things. And the first is that um, I hope if you are listening to this and you have concerns or questions about whether or not needing help with your mental health is a negative statement about your faith, that I would like to tell you as a very devout person of faith, it says nothing about your faith life to have mental health struggles and to talk to a professional. Um, And then secondly, as specifically a palliative care psychologist, I would like to say that the best last gift that you can give your loved ones is to have a living will and advanced directive where you spell out exactly what decisions you want made uh, at the end of your life in the event that you're not able to speak for yourself. And I am very happy to talk anyone through those forms. I do it literally every day. And so if you listen to this show, we can drop my info in the notes. Uh Uh-huh. And you can contact me for assistance. And I loved your point about your mental health not saying anything about your faith, because I actually... You know, I've found that therapy has informed my prayer life so much. Oh my gosh, yes. It's so good. Like, being able to, because being able to actually sit down and be able to tell Jesus actually how you're feeling, because you know how to tell him what you're feeling, because after three years of working on it, you actually know how to figure out what you're feeling, really opens the doors for him to actually do things in your life pulling out the feelings wheel at adoration and being like i'm here dude (laughs) what are we gonna do about that (laughs) we are at an eight out of ten do you see the frowny face on this little dude's face right now (laughs) thank you so much uh for coming on and talk to me today you can for those of you at home please uh follow us on your podcasting platforms, hit the subscribe button. Please rate and review us if your podcasting medium has that function. I trust that you are all adults and you know how to figure out if it does. You can also find us on all the social media platforms at Feminine Genus. I will have the links to all of that down below. Uh, and uh, we'll see you next time. Well, they'll hear remember, you next time. They'll hear you next time. I uh, Yes, that's fair. <laughs> They could see me with their ears. Um, Listeners, if you're seeing Miss Catherine with your ears, please contact a psychologist. (laughs) You may be having perceptual disturbances.
<laughs> and remember, y'all, JP2 called you a genius. <laughs>